Tea Breakers, and welcome to the 15th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. I am Mike Senior, and I'm here with John Witten, whose forthcoming Edinburgh Fringe show has already been described as suitable for 12-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We had to work for that particular accolade this time, Mike, but we got it. It's particularly fine that it's suitable for 12-year-olds, and the publicity picture is a woman flipping the bird. <laughs> Well, you got to understand, like, these are Edinburgh 12-year-olds. These are hardened soldiers of the theatrical arts. They've been drinking iron brew since they were two. <laughs> in the womb. In the womb is, I believe, how it works. How's preparation going for it? Well, we start rehearsal on the 7th of July. What, you mean you're rehearsing it before you get there? I know, I know. It's a rank betrayal of everything Edinburgh is meant to stand for. Mm. But we promise not to make it too good prior to arriving. Excellent. This is a really exciting part for me and all these because everyone starts bubbling with ideas. I'm getting sketches from the designer. I'm getting outlines from the assistant director. I'm getting a stony silence from the writer. It's frightening, <laughs> but, but, you know, we'll, we'll find our way through. I mean, what do they have to say about it anyway? <laughs> well, that's what I think, personally. <laughs> Whose play is this? Mine, if anyone's asking. Just mine. <laughs> exactly. Yours and Gilgamesh's. Yeah, me and me and Gilg. Gilgi. Gilla. <laughs> that's a difficult name to abbreviate. Have you, have you got any propositions? Because we're going to need to. It is tricky. Meshy. Meshy. Suppose so. Meshy. Mike, <laughs> this is the first hero king. He is one third god. And incidentally, don't think about that math too hard. It'll twist your brain up. Arguably, he's one third cow because his mother is a cow goddess. It's right. Mesopotamian family trees are more like kind of thickets. Right. <laughs> when, when, you, when you get into them. Anyway, that's what's been consuming my month. Tell me how you have earned this unalloyed pleasure of a tea break. Yeah, I've been, it actually has been a busy month. I've been rushing about to get basically a month's work done in advance so that I can go on holiday in August as I normally do at that time of year. Amazing. So it's like double videos, double podcasts, double articles, you know, double multi-track uploads. And of course, I've been building up to the awesome world record attempt. The big reveal. Okay, so Breakers, I have heard some <laughs> sample audio, even a leaked <laughs> snippet of video of Mike going for this world record attempt. It's sublime. It's going to be a work of art when it's done, I hope. With all my attention and the full weight of my artistry, I could not get such a plaintive sound out of a kazoo, <laughs> even if not also playing a violin, a piano, a triangle, and gosh knows what else. A kazoo virtuoso that I am. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> yes. though, it's been ups and downs because I lost an instrument in the process because I thought I could do violin and guitar at the same time. You did. I heard it in the recording. In practice, I couldn't get it reliable enough to be able to get any kind of sound on the violin and hit the guitar at the same time. So I had to abandon the guitar. Oh, gosh. So that lost me an instrument. It does. So I've been racking my brain about what I could do for another instrument. And I had this spare foot that you ably pointed out last month. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I was thinking of whether maybe I could apply that to some kind of extra instrument. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. But I'm pretty sure I've got it sorted out now, one way or another, that I'll get that seventh instrument back in. And video recording is scheduled for this week. So by the time this episode launches, <laughs> oh my goodness I think me. video evidence should appear on the patron's feed. So it's very exciting. I still think mm. that the extra instrument has got to be a xylophone played by a beater duct taped between your toes. I mean, you wouldn't need to duct tape it. I could probably hold it between my toes. I, okay, I agree. And it's entirely up to you whether you want video footage of your toes, your hairy toes actually <laughs> gripping a beater in, in full HD on the internet. Hobbit features. <laughs> Do you have Hobbit feet too? I have massively Hobbit feet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe I can still grip it through my sock. <laughs> or modesty sheath, as they are known yeah. in some circles. <laughs> That's a good idea, actually, thinking about it. I was thinking of working around it by adding another instrument onto one of my other hands. Because mm-hmm. it's a control problem with your foot. This is true. Oh, maybe I might be able to get to eight if I do that. Oh, this is cat amongst the <laughs> pigeons. Oh, no. I think the thing to do with the foot xylophone mm. is to kind of damp any kind of out-of-key notes mm. and then just play dreamy, revelish harp glissandi up and down throughout. I mean, I made a bit of a rub from my own back in some respects. In that there's no way I can just hold one note throughout the whole piece of music. It'd be a lot easier if I'd chosen something where I, which is just a single chord. <laughs> so let me get this straight, Mike. You, the man who finds himself spending evenings taping instruments to his hands, thinks he may have made a bit of a rod for his own back. <laughs> Do you think there is a sense in which you're punishing yourself with ridiculous endeavours? Interesting perspective there, Mike. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think there's definitely kind of a Stockholm Syndrome thing, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, a couple of days ago, hmm. I was practising putting on eyeliner. Oh, oh, as you do. Right. As one does. I have a feeling of, that I sense where this might be going. <laughs> where this is going is that I'm a man of my word. I, I would never doubt it. Surely no one could. Um, And it has occurred to me that with my lack of long or indeed any hair, if I'm going to give a believable, compelling performance Mm. of heavy metal knitting, I'm going to need some sort of facial augmentations. Mm. Mm. I think eyeliner is front and centre of... um, Well, it's getting into character, really, isn't it? It's embodying, I think, is the term, Mm. my demon inner self. Your master of puppets. When you first described it, it sounded a little bit like a novelty performance. Not really something that would tax me skill-wise. Mm. But knitting, while moshing, mm. whilst not stabbing yourself, <laughs> is very difficult. Now, any two of those three, you can select any two of those three things and do them together, no trouble at all. But including the third... <laughs> so basically, have you got through as much concealer as you have eyeliner in the end? <laughs> And twice as many plasters, yes. Well, um, I mean, that is the ultimate rock and roll. He drew blood while moshing. But it does stain the wool something awful. Oh, and I still haven't landed 300% on a song. I seem to remember there's a band in conjunction with the whole thing whose song is like part of the entry thing. In that case, all I can say is I hope that their music matches my knitting style. Yeah. Because I am not going to compromise my integrity. That it does it justice. That this is metal to which I can knit. That is worthy of your wool. Otherwise, hold things off. I'll, I'll walk. I'll be in my trailer. Now, you know how you mentioned a few episodes ago about the Britney Spears song, If You Seek Amy? Oh, I love that song. Yes. Yes, I do. Well, I didn't realise, but there is a fabulous song that was released in the 60s by a guy called Stephen Friedland, a.k.a. Brute Force, Mm -hmm. called The King of Fa. (laughs) Okay. And you can kind of imagine where this goes. (laughs) The King of Fa. Yeah, I feel like they haven't buried the lead too deep on this one. (laughs) I I feel like I might be able to unearth. We have a selection of lyrics here. This goes, there was a beautiful land called Fa. And in this land, there was a king. And everyone called him the f***ing. <laughs> and the f***ing did what he wanted to do. And the f***ing said what he wanted to say. All hail the f***ing, the mighty f***ing. <laughs> but what's even better about this is apparently both John Lennon and George Harrison were real fans of this song. Really? And George Harrison funded it to have, like, London Phil strings put on it. 
And they released it on the Apple label. No. They released a thousand copies of it. George Harrison, the guy who wrote <laughs> something, maybe the most sublime love ballad in the English language, and John Lennon who... While my guitar gently weeps. Yeah. Um... Yeah. <laughs> this was his idea of, of where music yeah. was headed next, where it should absolutely be going. <laughs> Incidentally, our censorship chipmunk is going to have a whale of a time. He's going to be buzzing. He, I mean, he, he dropped his entire packet of nuts when, I, when I, I started that segment. Wait, the chipmunk's nuts have dropped? <laughs> <laughs> totally changed the voice, isn't it? That was quick. <laughs> oh dear. Sorry, listeners. Hi, mum. <laughs> I say them like they're two groups. Those are, you know, one and the same. And we also have to come back to another long-running segment on this podcast now. This whole idea of key changes in songs. Oh, really? We're still there. Now I need to ask you a question, John. Are you an idiot? <laughs> Goodness me, I mean, we're, we're at episode 15 of this podcast now, so I'd love to be able to deny it. I mean, I think you are, and I think I am too. Right. I think we are both clearly utter idiots, because there is such an obvious example that we both missed, and that is Good Vibrations. Where does that change? Both of the choruses, they step up a whole tone, twice. Really? And in the outro, it steps down twice, and then up twice, and then down again. It's all over the place. That's ridiculous. So it's like a step-up cliche that's not at the end. It's, it's, it's brilliant in that respect. Does it jump up into that first chorus? No. The first chorus starts, and then it repeats a tone up, and then it repeats another tone up. It does. It completely does. <laughs> <laughs> we just completely missed one of the iconic key changes of popular music. <laughs> or one of the iconic key change songs. I mean, really, it's changing all over the place. Okay, wow. So it is incontrovertible proof that we're both idiots. <laughs> if we didn't already have it. I was going to say, <laughs> as if the world needed any more of that at this stage. <laughs> I can't believe we missed that one. It's incredibly embarrassing, really. It is. Apologies to the Beach Boys, who I know are avid fans. Yeah, of course. While we're on the topic of... Um, oh, what's a segue? It's one of those things you ride on. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's one of those things that gets you around, yeah. and many would consider entirely useless technology. Yes. I'll take that one. Yes, yes. Hey, speaking of entirely useless technology... <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, you've done this before. <laughs> Friend of the podcast... Adam Staff. Hello, Adam. Dropped us a line with a new story we just had to hear, mm. uh, which is Aria. Okay. Aria is an analog mastering service, which is both entirely analog and entirely untouched by human hands. Okay. So incredibly, it, it takes your music and it uses presumably algorithms and coding and AI. Okay, yes, yes. I'm already worried. <laughs> These things to decide exactly what kind of analog processing your piece of music needs to master it to perfection. Uh, and then it just does that with purely analog hardware. Are they motorized pots or something? Or how does that work? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because as you, as you point out, it would be very, very easy to just kind of motorize the pots. Yeah. Or, you know, put in some MIDI control or yeah. a single digital microcontroller. But that would be cheating, Mike. Mm, mm. So what they've got is a large format robotic arm. No. Which twiddles the knob. <laughs> It twiddles the knobs for you. And there's pictures of it, and there's videos oh, of wow. it. And it's so ridiculous. Is it like you remotely controlling some mastering hardware to master your stuff, or is it that the service decides what it's going to do and then then does it? Mike, 
as if our puny human brains well, of course. could have anything to add, anything of value to add at this stage. No. No, no. The robot decides where to twiddle the knobs. We're being out-evolved. Then the robot twiddles them, and you and you like it. Or lump it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you know what's really funny about that? Tell me. I mean, if, <laughs> there could be a fabulous snake oil thing going on there, couldn't there? <laughs> it could just basically be a video of this thing twiddling knobs and stuff and actually it turns out they're basically subletting to lander <laughs> send it off to lander then chuck it back and then challenge you to say it's not gone through analog hardware i know i know <laughs> robot controlled analog hardware because i did hear this report in the paper the other day that apparently there are a bunch of chatbots mm. that aren't chatbots they're actually real people really now where is the context where that the people is- are basically kind of underpinning the whole idea of ai <laughs> chatbots by the fact that there are humans who are picking up the bits that they can't deal with. That's amazing. So it's like AI-assisted humans rather than AI entirely. And more to the point, you know, there are situations it's cheaper to have a whole person do something for you Mm. than the software or the development that would be required to have a computer do it. Absolutely. You're kind of pretending there's a computer there and actually you're just paying someone off in Sri Lanka to do it for you. It reminds me of this trend you were talking about in the... Gosh, insert decade here. Maybe the 80s, when you were in your late 30s. <laughs> All right, oh yeah. When analog hardware was sold as digital because it had a little LCD screen on it somewhere. Oh, yes, you're right. But it, was, it was purely analog, but they wanted to get that kind of digital heat. <laughs> yes. Or indeed, whoever realised that humans were cheaper than billboards. Yeah. And that you could just pay them to carry signs. Oh, we're all such mugs, aren't we? Something wrong with the world. I think we're part of it, unfortunately. <laughs> doubtless. Doubtless true. <laughs> Which brings us to our news, which John's doing this month, which means it's probably going to be about musical theatre, and you guessed it, it's about musical theatre. We're, we're going to talk more about musicals, because I love them. They are good. I love them so much. Mm. And it was pointed out to me by someone who listened to the episode where where we decried the fact that there was going to be an Only Fools and Horses musical. Oh, God, yeah. Which I'm still loudly decrying. Me too. But there are a huge amount of um, independent musicals coming up, writers with original ideas. Indeed. Goodness me, it's a hard industry to kind of break through in. Mm. As long ago as Avenue Q, people were making fun of it, and then you make fun of people making fun of it, and it goes however many levels of irony deep. Oh, God, yeah. And I looked into this, and that there is a festival, um, MT Fest UK, which has run for a couple of years. Cool. It kind of promotes work by new, by new writers. Uh, the Other Place is a venue in London which does lots of this, and there's a lot of brilliant, sincere work. Cool. There's also some really ridiculous ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And that mic is what we're going to talk about now. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the what are these fresh new releases that are setting the musical theatre world on fire? Well, I'm going to tell you some of them, but not just some of them. I'm going to read you out two blurbs. Go on then. Two titles and blurbs. Mm. One of them is a musical that was produced. Now, put on stage. Okay. Actors were paid, scenography was painted. Right. Vocal exercises were la 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 presumably. Yeah. Um, the other one is something that I came up with 10 minutes before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> so it could be on at the next Fringe. <laughs> it's absolutely deserving to uh, transfer to the National <laughs> Theatre, but hasn't yet. Okay, then. Hit me with it. <laughs> First musical is called... Fresh. Fresh, okay. Exclamation mark. Yeah, well, the exclamation mark is important, yeah. Megan and Christie are as wholesome as it gets. The true story of two counterculture queens (laughs) fight to make our planet organic and the founding of Waitrose. Run that by me again. (laughs) 
Megan and Christy are as wholesome as it gets. Yeah. The true story of two counterculture queens fight to make our planet organic and the founding of Waitrose. <laughs> so it's about the founding of Waitrose. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, so you've got to just hold that one in your head. I'm, okay, I'm trying to keep it there, yeah, okay. Uh, here's the next. Nerds. A musical dot comedy. Okay. That one sink in. Telling the story of the rise of computer technology and the two men that made it possible, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Okay. So a singing and dancing Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. It sounds a bit like the um, celebrity death match between Bill Gates and <laughs> Michael Flatley, which I always liked. Now, why didn't they have songs? <laughs> they should have. I think, I think they would still be making those today if they had a slight, slight musical, like Glee meets Celebrity Deathmatch. Yeah, I mean, that's totally a musical waiting to happen, isn't it? <laughs> so, you see, it, these ideas just fall out of this podcast. It's true. Okay, right. So we've got the Waitrose biopic. Fresh exclamation mark. And then we've got more like the social network one. Nerds, but with no punctuation after it. Which one of those were professionals paid to take part in? You know what? I think I'm going to go for nerds. Ding, ding, ding. You are 100% correct. <laughs> oh, I got there. Great. You clearly find it much more believable than me that you can make a musical about typing on computers or that oh, anyone God. wants to see someone dress up as Bill Gates and sing. I mean, the thing is, I'm putting it in context of things that I know are real musicals. <laughs> okay, tell me more. Like, I mean, for example, How to Win at History. That is very true. Again, it's like, what does the pitch for that sound like? <laughs> I actually, this is a question. Or, I mean, here's the one I, I would think of straight away: chess. Chess, the musical. It's like, how do you pitch a musical about a <laughs> chess competition? This is a question I do have for Cyril, which I'm going to have to throw at him on Twitter or something. Um, what on earth is the pitch? <laughs> you know, when you when you have a group of people who've never seen the musical, what is the pitch for that? So yes, Nerds is absolutely real. Uh, it premiered in. February this year, I think. Do you have Do you have any song titles or anything that we can enjoy? Sadly not. I mean, what can we imagine they might be? This is from the genius minds that wrote the copy, a musical dot comedy. The hills are alive with the sound of C++. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> um, uh, there's a python in my pocket and he's coming out. It could, could be kind of a Rocky Horror style... Bit, and I hope they go Rocky Horror style on it. Um, zippity doodah, zipper compression algorithm. <laughs> Is it possible we don't know that much about computer <laughs> development, but have got a few buzzwords that we can whip out? <laughs> Feels like it almost might be that way. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> looking out my window. Mac attack. <laughs> um, Return of the Mac. But is this going to be a jukebox music or is this all original material? Well, okay, we could get a long way with jukebox. I think we could. There's Mac the Knife. Blimey, there are loads of Macs, aren't there? Window to Your World. Gates of Hell, which could be when Bill Gates gets kind of really mean. Oh, well, Gates. I mean, the moment you've got Gates, um, it's like, uh, what is it? Something at the Gates. Uh, what is it? Oh. I believe in you. I don't know. Can't remember it now, but this. I think it's like a famous like prog rock thing. Something at the gates. Oh god, I can't remember now. Well, whatever. It's probably good that I don't remember it really. It's better for my cred. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that is by Hal Goldberg, uh, Jordan Allen Dunton Dutton, sorry, and Eric Weiner. So was it like a two-hander then? There were just two people on stage, and that was it. Oh no, those were people who wrote it. The cast includes. I'm seeing 11, 12 people. It was a huge cast. Wow. Yeah. That is a big cast. Including one character listed just as 
Oracle, <laughs> which makes me think, actually, this is a musical I need to see. <laughs> this is raising more questions than it's answering, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is, isn't it? I mean, this is what a good pitch looks like, surely, then. It's intriguing us enough to go, actually, we, we've got to go see that. Yes, because I do want to know more. It doesn't have an exclamation mark, though. It doesn't. No punctuation at all. Maybe that's why it never made the world stage. I think that's why I'm not seeing it on Broadway right now. Mm. Here are our next, our next two. Right, I've got one out of one so far. Let's see if I'm laser-guided. Okay. Number one. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> Porn is an anarchic musical that aims to make you throb with delight. Okay. When young Stefan's tranquil life on the island of Malta is shattered by a shock revelation, he heads to America for a fresh start. <laughs> He's soon making friends in an industry that might just take some getting used to. Okay, right. Is there an exclamation mark after the end? No, there's no punctuation at all. So it's just porn, that's it. But I think there's an implicit exclamation mark after porn and music. I think it's full of exclamation marks Yeah. if you read it properly. All right, yeah, well, that's, that's sounding pretty plausible at the moment, but go on, let's see if it's more plausible the next one you got. Okay, then the second musical, Austerity for Two. <laughs> half Randy Burlesque, half real interviews by those most hit by Austerity Britain. Austerity for Two dives deep into where we are, how we got here, and how we might, just might, be able to find our way out. No, no, that can't be. That just can't be. No, no, I'm going to go for the porn one. The porn is such a marketing man's dream. I can't believe that's not, that doesn't already exist, actually. <laughs> okay. So, you ding, ding. Oh, you're two oh. for two. You're right the way there. I'm lazy guided today. And I'm not as good at writing fake copy as I thought I was. <laughs> but I have an Easter egg for you. I have bonus for you in this. Oh, right. Which is that this is not the first Porn the musical. Oh, lovely. To come out in London's musical scene. <laughs> there may well be more that I haven't found, but there are at least two more. One in the late 1990s, one in 2010, which got a two-star review in The Guardian. Oh, wow. That's a badge of honour, isn't it? And these are all, as far as I can tell, these are three unrelated musicals. Why am I totally not surprised? It's like any word that's going to titillate or shock could be used. But then... You know, where is the violence, the musical, which brings us back to Celebrity Deathmatch, the musical? There must be, like, Al-Qaeda, the musical, or something. It's got to be there. <laughs> I, you can Google that on your computer if you want to. <laughs> um, my search history is going to stay. You're still smarting from the arse trumpet search. Absolutely, I am. That's how you ended up at that musical, actually, I think. <laughs> Well, this one, huge thanks to Ria Samazzi for turning me on to Porn the Musical. What a great turn of phrase there. You just tripped off your tongue for turning you on to Porn the Musical. <laughs> this came from a very serious conversation we had. Oh, okay. Ria is a theatre maker, and we're talking about whether we'd ever seen a truly erotic play. Wow. And, of course, you know, with the exception of every Punch and Judy ever, um, they're rare. Yep. <laughs> you know, theatre goes for such a wide range of emotional responses. But um, there's not the nine and a half weeks of theatre. No, really not. No, no, the red door. No kind of... That is fascinating, actually. I'd not thought about that. And how have 2,000 years of theatre failed to produce what we produce on a schedule every month in audio form for one <laughs> long hour? Yeah, that's a good question. If you're tired of sending us in cool key changes, uh, tell us about sexy plays. <laughs> we're, you know, we're up for anything. Thank you. 
Okay, once more we dip into the barrel full of face palms and select another choice specimen. <laughs> this is one barrel that we would be happy to one day scrape. We have not even sighted the bottom yet. So far, they seem bountiful <laughs> and overflowing. It's a really tall barrel. <laughs> These are cornucopia more than barrels. Oh, Mike, I love your face farms. What have we got? A keyboard player who I've worked with now for seven or eight years. I've done a couple of records with him already. In fact, three records with him now. Mm -hmm. And he had just joined a new band. Okay. It was a kind of a Latin jazz kind of salsary band. And they wanted to record an album. Okay. And very kindly, he recommended me to the band leader as a possible person to record this album. So we set up a phone call and I and we chatted on the phone about it to discuss, you know, his plans, what he wanted. So far, this all sounds reasonable and normal. I'm fully lulled to describe my current mental state. Yeah, I'm already feeling kind of positive about it. As the guy seems very friendly on the phone, I'm asking about the usual lineup, the, the lineup of the band. I'm asking about the style he's working with, you know, the way he'd like to work. I mean, my typical way is like, what do you want to do rather than me dictating what they should do, right? Yeah. So I'm asking, you know, do you want to record all at once or do you want to do it layer by layer? Are there any parts you need to isolate for like comping purposes or because you want to do overdubs? All this kind of practical stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I get to the point where I explain, well, you know, my general concept about the way I record stuff is that I record stuff on location. I have my whole studio set up that I can stick in the car, go to a venue, set up a studio there for you. And because this guy is like in the area where this keyboard player lives, it's like three or four hours away, I don't really know any venues in that area. Oh, yeah. So I said, well, the thing you need to do then is you need to find a venue where we can record. Yeah. I've worked this way umpteen times. It's basically the way I've been working my entire life, pretty much. Forever in a day. I very rarely work in, you know, in quotes, pro studios. Right. I'm normally working in, you know, rehearsal rooms or people's flats or, or school halls or theatres or whatever, places where they just happen to be able to get access. Yeah. So he asked me, well, what, what do I need to find? Mm -hmm. what, what am I looking for? And this totally stumped me. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, usually... The question I get is, oh, well, uh, we can get into this school out of hours and there's a possibility we might be able to use uh, uh, my sister-in-law's holiday home. Which do you think is going to work? <laughs> and so they'll send me a few pictures and I'll go, well, I think we can make this one work. I think we can fit around that and, and I think we can work that out. Yeah. And then I just weigh out the pros and cons and I advise them with the best option. But here, I was basically being expected to prescribe something. Yeah. To just say, okay, well, you need this, you need to have this, whatever. He said, well, should we like book a studio? Yeah. And I said, well, you don't really have to, given that I have all the gear to set up a studio on site. And I specialise in, in getting results outside of studio environments. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, if you can't find a venue and there's a decent piano in the studio because they need a piano and they have a decent setup of rooms and a control room and stuff, then it might actually be cost effective to do that. That might be easier. So I couldn't like say, yes, get a proper studio or no, don't. Because it all <laughs> depends. Yeah. So how many rooms do we need? It's like, well, you know, I've worked in one room before, but it'd be best to have two if possible. <laughs> But if you've got more than that, that's even better. <laughs> not less than one, not more than the total number of people who will be there. Exactly. <laughs> this is kind of the region within which we're working. And then he's like, well, um, what kinds of rooms do we need? What size do they need to be? <laughs> ovoid. Exclusively <laughs> like, ovoid. Like, well, it, it, it depends on like how many rooms we actually have, what kind of sound we're after, because I've not heard the band yet or what kind of sound they wanted. Yeah. The way we're recording it, like how we're actually going to do the recording session, you know, whether we need to have everyone set up at once. Mm. And in the end, the only thing I could really say was, well, probably we need at least a three metre ceiling if we're going to do drums. Mm -hmm. But I could probably work around that too. I mean, I've recorded drums in other places, don't have that. So it just... This is the, the danger of flexibility, Mike. <laughs> I know. So I just kind of felt that I was flailing. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to be totally accommodating and like customer focused. It just felt like 
I'm sounding like I'm completely clueless. <laughs> but maybe this is a hindsight, because at the time, I thought I'm just doing my usual conversation on the phone. Mm. But it just felt a little bit more difficult to communicate what I was trying to say about what we needed to do. Mm. But then, you know, the conversation ended pleasantly enough. You know, I came away basically with the impression that, yes, he was interested in doing this with me. We'd agreed on mutually compatible dates that would be possibilities. And he said that he'd send me some demos so I get some idea of basically what sound there are, maybe some references, and also some details of possible venues that I could advise on or check out further. Brilliant. Then I heard nothing more <laughs> until about a week before the first potential date that we were <laughs> going to do this thing. And I thought, well, I've not heard from him. I suppose I really should get in touch because I need to plan if we're going to do this date. Okay. So I emailed the keyboard player because that was the only email address I had at the time. Yeah. And he, he got back and said, oh, uh, we've already booked it. We're already doing it in studio. Okay. They completely made other plans. So I had managed <laughs> in this phone call basically to talk myself out of the job. <laughs> <laughs> to be sufficiently undemanding that you were just impossible to work with. Well, I mean, the, the difficult thing about it is that I got no feedback whatsoever from the guy. Mm. So I'm still guessing as to what might be the reason why I talked myself out of the job. Whether it was just that, his um, impression of how much I cost maybe from the keyboard player, he felt was too much. And he hadn't even discussed it with me. Interesting. So you guys hadn't even talked money? No, we hadn't even talked money yet. Interesting. I mean, I wonder, because I was trying to be so accommodating, whether he interpreted that as me being either clueless or completely like dithering around and not being able to commit to anything yeah yeah and that maybe i just needed to be more prescriptive and go well you need to do it like this and we're going to go here and we're going to do that and it's going to cost you that and basically force him into a mold <laughs> now you see this is where i think you might also be on the same page with me here because this conversation all happened in german <laughs> ah. <sighs> so it's very possible that you just made extremely disparaging remarks about his mother's apple pie and <laughs> possible i mean the conversation was pleasant enough and i got the impression at the end of it that i had an understanding of what we'd agreed <laughs> but maybe i just misunderstood <laughs> some of his german such that actually at the end he said well no i think i'll pass on that <laughs> whether i misread the tone of the conversation in general or i misunderstood his intentions at the end of the call i don't know but ever since i've been wondering whether i just facepalm myself out of that job and of course it's impossible to ever know isn't it absolutely and there is definitely an appeal to having someone on board who's very prescriptive yeah i find myself in something like that position when I teach composition workshops. Yeah. Because if people are just starting out or something, someone will ask me if a chord is right. Mm. And one of these days I will learn to say yes or no. Oh, yeah. But I just can't help myself with a, you know, chords are effects, notes are sounds. How could a, how could a frequency be wrong? It's all in, it, you know, it's language. It's, yeah. And, you know, the person leaves, perhaps not unreasonably, wondering what exactly I was doing teaching. Um, <laughs> if, if my feeling about everything they did was that it was an effect. No, it's a real struggle, that, actually. I did do a little bit of composition kind of teaching or it's not even teaching really it's kind of mentoring maybe is a better word for it mm. and it was like trying to work out how to say whether this met their intentions you kind of had to say okay tell me what your intentions are what you're aiming at what you aspire to yeah and then i'll listen to what you've done and say well maybe you're not using some of the possibilities that you could use that some of these things you aspire to do but that was the best i ever got yeah and i do wonder whether some people just crave more finality mm. or more prescribed thing it's like option paralysis completely and my internal experience of that is when i go and get my hair cut <laughs> oh yes oh i can't stand it my yeah. i mean i haven't got my hair cut professionally for about six years and this is part of why because the person will say what do you want and i will say oh. for you to cut my hair oh, no, for people for the next week to say that looks nice you know that is so true 
It's like, how can I complain about someone being vague like that when I'm so guilty as charged when it comes to hairdressers? I would totally go, well, can't you just like make it look look good? <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> I appreciate you're not a magician. I appreciate that I'm only paying 10 quid for this. So, you know, do what you can. And actually, it's <laughs> totally a perfect analogy because it's taken me in Germany a while to find a hairdresser who actually cuts my hair in a way that I like. Mm. And I've been to several. Yeah. And I go once and I look at it and I'm not that happy about it. And then I go again and go, well, I'm not that happy about it. You did this a bit last time and, and I didn't like that. And they do it again, and it's still not very good. Yeah. And I go, well, am I going to keep going back to this place and keep trying to give them feedback, or shall I just try someone else? Mm. And so I just try someone else, and that makes a much bigger difference. <laughs> There's nothing more frustrating, apparently, than to hear from a composer that the kind of music they make is all kinds. Oh, God, or yeah. whatever you like. Because if, as an artistic director, you're going through a list of composers, all you want is just to be able to do a bit of pigeonholing. To narrow it down. And have two adjectives that describe each one. Yeah. And then decide what you want and then pick one of them. Yeah. And the fact that maybe this composer could do North Indian classical or, I don't know hoof and throat singing that's not helpful yeah you want tools in a toolbox not a wrench that says i could try being a hammer let's experiment with that and actually the funny thing is i think a lot of engineers do specialize in a certain type of music and that makes it easier for people to come to them and go okay i know what i'm getting there yeah and i suppose i'm a victim of my own lifestyle in that respect in that i have to keep hopping styles and have to keep doing different things just because there's this kind of um tutorial element to a lot of what i do and i can't keep doing the same thing Mm. so yeah maybe that's maybe it's part of the outcome of that i'd like to blame it on something else (laughs) I'm grasping here I'm sure we can find something I think it was the weather I think it's the weather too It was the phase of the moon So John Do you have a pressing reader question For us to shed light upon Short question this month Dear Breakmasters which is a very genteel way of addressing us. I like that. Yes. Bold new innovations in tech, especially wrist pianos, often have a tough (laughs) break on your show. What is an out there piece of tech you'd like to see come to market? And this from Margaret Bellum in Sydney, Australia. So an exotic question. Yeah, I mean, it deserves an exotic answer, I would have thought. I should think so. (laughs) Kick us off then. Kick us off. So I could really use... Okay. I could desperately need... Mm. I really ought to have... You really, really, really want to? <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I want a rando mute plugin. Rando mute, okay. And I would put this... Gosh, I guess I'd have to put it everywhere. But what it does is it disables 20% of the plugins I have running at any given time. Yeah. And then just a little pop-up comes up... Okay. ...and says, incidentally, I've just muted 20% of everything. Did you notice a difference? <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. It, it doesn't tell you when it's going to mute this stuff, mind you. You're just working on a project. That is funny. And maybe it just starts sounding a bit fresher and there's more space and more room and less digital and <laughs> then the pop-up will come. And if you say, yeah, no, I guess that's better, then it just deletes them. <laughs> that is so good. And you never have to think about them again. That's like the antidote to confirmation bias. <laughs> exactly. I like that a lot, actually. It could be a bit like meter plugs perception, you know, where you have a plug-in before and after the plug-in you're trying to bypass. Okay. And it loudest matches and then doesn't tell you when it's going to do it Mm -hmm. but sometime when you play through it bypasses it just to see whether you notice it are you telling me this exists uh, a volume matched bypass plugin the volume matched bypass thing does exist okay meter plugs perception is something that enables you to check 
what the sound of a track is going to be with and without the processing, with it being loudest matched. That sounds incredibly useful because, yes, I am such a sucker for volume. It's great for mastering, but you can use it anywhere. So yeah, the Rando Muter, the name of which I will not compromise on. So that's that's my first exotic piece of tech. That's a strong idea. Well, okay, well, seeing as we're in the software world, you remember we talked about the oh-so-desirable winner of the Straight to Landfill Award, the uh, TC Electronic TC2290 Delay? I do remember that, yes. With its fetching hardware controller. Extremely necessary desk real estate <laughs> munching controller. Yes, I, I recall that one. Well, I said at the time, you know, if you have all these controllers for your software stuff, mm. in the end, you're basically going to rebuild your hardware studio again, having <laughs> taken it back in the box. I think that is the dream. And I think that concept is still clearly a desire. People want that immediacy of being able to use both hands in a real normal way. Yeah. And actually reach out and pick controls that are around themselves. But in acoustic terms... You can't build a studio that has all the physical controls of your synths in easy arm's reach without affecting the way the acoustics are. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So what I think, this is a bit of futurology for you. Now, have you ever seen the film Minority Report? <gasps> I so have seen the film Minority Report. Right? Yes. Now, in yes. Minority Report, just to fill anyone who hasn't seen it, there's a big computer system that they use for doing all this kind of futuristic crime-solving thing, mm. which involves Tom Cruise with a little eye-scanning thing on and a pair <laughs> of sensory gloves. Then the digital elements are created by augmented reality. Yes, they're overlaid. You know, a bit like Pokemon Go, you know. Yes. You can walk around the real environment and see these things overlaid. And I think augmented reality is where it's going to head. And I reckon... There's so a product waiting to be made like that. Basically, it's like your TC2290 control, mm -hmm. but it's a virtual version in augmented reality. So you have your augmented reality specs on while you're working. It has gesture recognition on your computer's camera, oh. which you already get for things like some of those drones. Oh my God, the future's cool. So I think the product I expect to be here at some point, and I'm just waiting for, okay. is basically all these hardware controllers created like a, like an airplane cockpit in augmented reality. Mm. So all your controls and stuff are available to you like above you, to the left and right, all within arm's reach in a kind of a surround 3D world. Surround sphere, yes. While you're sat in the sweet spot without any physical things in the way of you and your monitors, mm. and that you can wave your hands about, it recognises your gestures and adjusts all the controls directly. Oh, God. See, because now I've just got this image of you you go into this kind of empty warehouse space and you turn on the lights with one of those ka-chunk switches. <laughs> yeah. You're going to ka-chunk it, and then the, the fluorescent lines come on one row at a time. Ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. And the audience is like, oh, it's so empty. What, what are they going to do here? It's like the technology area in Dark Knight. Yes. Okay, I will confess that is exactly <laughs> what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the modern Batcave. Um, it is. But instead of some gun machine that Michael Caine isn't sure if it's loud enough. Yeah. This one has Batman put on the uh, the glasses and all of a sudden just everything comes to life and okay yeah I'll be buying me one of those. Okay let me hit back at you. Go on then. With a more near future version of that idea. Okay. This sounds amazing but you know we're not there yet. So as you say there's this desire to kind of bring back the hardware studio. Oh, yeah. But what are the issues there? Well, it's hard to reconfigure. It takes up a lot of space. Yeah. Um, all this kind of stuff. So I give you mm -hmm. the inflatable rack. 
And this is a Fisher Price looking thing. Okay. Which you blow up with a small electronic pump at the back, and then you you have one of those things you have on beach balls, those tabs that you push shut to stop the air from getting back out. Another one. Yeah. 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 And then you come back around the front, and it looks like a rack of effects. You know, it's all cool greys and reds and stuff. Yeah, I like it. And then you have little twiddleable knobs on the end of it all and they just obviously they feed midi to your computer where the actual stuff happens yeah but you know it's a big old rack just like a big boy would have i mean why not yeah i mean like encoder things can be very light and and cheaply made now why can't they be built into a inflatable an inflatable control surface basically (laughs) and then when you want to go you just deflate it i mean i've often thought that there might be a market for inflatable acoustic isolation products Ooh. That's not so silly. Because actually, if you had like a bouncy castle style stuff, right? Yeah. And it's got air in it. And air is actually a very good acoustic barrier. Maybe if you do things with inflatable stuff, you can actually create quite good isolation in recording environments. That's a great idea. I don't know. I like the idea though. Okay, but here's the thing. We've been quite tech. We've been quite software. Mm. Even our hardware ideas have been quite software oriented. Yeah, they have. Give me something physical, maybe an instrument, maybe something which could only exist really in the physical realm. Wow. That you need in your studio. Hardware's tricky. Oh, I've got one. I definitely got one. Okay, right. <clears throat> We've been talking about robot arms. <laughs> Regrettably, lamentably, yes, we have. And there is an essential problem whenever you try and audition speakers. Okay. And that is, if you put them in your room, you can't directly compare them with other speakers that are in the same position. Because even if you put them right next to each other, they're in appreciably a different position in a small room. Mm-hmm. So I think there might be a market for a, like a, a motorized speaker dolly system. <laughs> I was so hoping you were going to say that. Maybe it's like a um, like a lazy Susan. It's a rotating thing. You can have several speakers on. You press a button and it goes, yeah. and the, the things rotate to the next speaker <laughs> at the same time as flipping the monitoring. The only problem, and I say problem like it's a problem, but it's not. The only <laughs> awesome thing with that yeah. is that my first instinct would be to set the rotation to fast and set a mic up in front of it. <laughs> and then that's my new sound. To defeat the speaker switching. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. It's a spinning Leslie situation, but with different monitors. You just keep spinning till the cables run out. <laughs> just going to wind up and up like a garden hose. I like that. But I mean, if you made it like an ice cream maker, <laughs> you know, put the same logic in that, then you could get it so it spun all the way one way till it got too much tension on the cables and then it switched and spun it the other way. First off, you make ice cream. That sounds awesome. I, I want to know how. Uh, I-, I don't do it, but my kids do. Well, your kids need to teach me how to make ice cream because that sounds awesome. Oh, okay, right, right. <laughs> and second of all, I just, I can't get over how cool this would sound. That would be amazing. I think this needs to be made in practical and immediate terms. Now, these are all good suggestions. Last one from me. Mic sleeves. Mic sleeves. Okay, right. Now, this would be uh, what we could call aesthetic augmentation. Okay, right. Like those car wraps. Precisely. Putting a hood ornament from a different manufacturer on your mic. Now, <laughs> oh, I like this a lot. Mics are expensive compared to, you know, whatever most people are paying for rent and food and all the rest. Yep. And a lot of that price comes in brand recognition. Yep. It's something I don't think musicians like to talk about. But I think there is a huge amount of faddishness and there's a huge amount of, oh, I'm running the such and such. You're right. Yeah. I will not put on blast the actual module, um, but there is a piece of hardware that's quite big in Berlin at the moment. And it's a compressor and it's fine. But what it's known for is that it has a a working gauge from a (laughs) U-boat. That's great. From an actual U-boat. And it gives you important information about what this piece of hardware is doing. Wow. Um, And there have only been about 100 made because there's only been about 100 of these valves recovered. Yeah, fabulous. So, 
What I'm saying is there is no reason to feel intimidated going into a situation with a microphone that perhaps is an unknown brand or a brand that's known for good value microphones. Just take a mic sleeve. True. And you know what? Tell me. Your dreams have already been answered. No, really? These products exist. (laughs) (laughs) You know those big old style ribbon mics that you used to see on radio announcers' desks? I do. The big square ones? Yes, yes, yes. You can get things like that that are basically just the body with the grill and you can stick a 57 in there or whatever you want. That's amazing, Mike. So those products already exist. Oh, and Project Studio Tea Break says (laughs) five out of five stars. And I mean, why not? Buy a broken U87 yep. and then stick some MXL or SE mic in it. I believe that people recording through that will feel better about the sound than with a 57 or whatever. Oh, they totally will. In fact, there's that story about Paul McCartney when he was producing Ringo Starr on something Ringo Starr was doing. Mm. I heard this from some engineer, I can't remember who now, but Ringo Starr really liked the look of like a mic that was designed for like harmonica or something said, oh, well, that's a really cool mic. <laughs> and McCartney goes, oh, yeah, well, we we'll use that for your vocals then. Even though it's totally not a vocal mic. It's all over the place. And the engineer said, do we really want to let him sing through a harmonica mic? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll get a much better performance out of it. And he was right, I'm sure. Interesting. The way it looks makes a huge difference. Makes a massive, massive difference. In fact, we're going to come back to this later in the podcast, I think. Oh, I'm excited for that. I'm very excited for that. So anyway, I hope that that helps questioner uh, Margaret Bellum thank you so much for that and if not she's so far away I don't think she can come and beat us up I was going to say what are you going to do you're in Australia <laughs> go punch a kangaroo if you're upset that's, no. that's not on us that's right. stereotypes are us I said what everyone was thinking they just weren't bold enough to admit it they weren't they were cowards our cowardly listeners um, but hello to Australia we love you very much hello So, John, I can see that you are fully poised to announce our next section. What is your jam with new and exciting Toast Foley? I'm so glad you avoided that that treacherous word, improved. Um, That's (laughs) that's a pressure that I just, I am not ready to deal with. (laughs) Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I give you July's Toast Foley. Here we go. That's pretty good, actually. I like that. How was that? Was that all right? Yeah. It's got a slightly metallic tinge to it, but that could be the knife, couldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, knives are so often metal. Let me try one other performance technique and see how that does for you. Okay, right, right. All right. I mean, that that sounds like, you know, you've toasted it a bit long and it's got a bit black and you're scraping the black bits off. (laughs) Yes. God, I am there very frequently (laughs) because we don't have a toaster. All right. That's probably not a very interesting story, I've just realised. Anyway. Well, it happened to me just the other day because I think one of my daughters must have turned the toaster up (laughs) without me knowing. The gremlins. I was like, what's that smell? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The gremlins in your home. That is our toast probably. That is, in fact, two carrots being grated simultaneously. Oh, I love that. (laughs) I think there should be kind of extra points for toast folio that is as far as possible from toast. (laughs) And that's really good. Raw carrots get a good score on that particular metric. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of our better ones, definitely. Plus, I've now got a snack for the rest of this segment, so I'm I'm thrilled. Vitamins and minerals for the day sorted out. Anyway. Oh, there you go. What's your jam this week? (laughs) Okay, right, well... Now, this is a little bit of a return to something we've touched on before. The auto-composing Bach Google Doodle. I thought it might come to this. Yes. Now, we've been doing lots of stuff about AI and machine learning and whatever else. We have. And I was recently educating myself a little bit with an excellent book 
that I can recommend by Hannah Fry, Dr. Hannah Fry, called Hello World. And towards the end of the book, she uh, brought up a, a fabulous experiment to do with music and AI. Okay. I'll set the scene. In October 1997, so this is 22 years ago. Goodness me. A concert was held at the University of Oregon. Mm -hmm. The pianist, Winifred Kerner, sat down at the piano and played three short two-part inventions. Okay. One of which was by Bach. Hmm. One was in the style of Bach by Dr. Steve Larson, professor of music theory and a Bach expert at University of Oregon. Mm -hmm. And the other one was by the EMI computer algorithm, created by Dr. David Cope, professor of music at the University of California of Santa Cruz. Right. And they all call it Emmy. But the audience were not told which was which. Right. And neither did I tell John which was which when I sent him <laughs> mini file performances of these three pieces a moment ago. This is entirely true. This is entire moments before we started recording. So the question is, which one's which? Now, if you'd like to play along at home, listeners, there's a link on our Facebook page to the audio files. I have my answers. What do you think, then? And a degree of certainty as well. Okay, yeah, okay, right. So, the first invention, it's restrained, it's very clearly structured, I mean, it's technically correct. The melodic ideas are mostly scalar. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of cautious but correct... I would expect from an algorithmically made piece. Okay, so there's the first one. What do you think about the other two? Invention two is definitely much more florid. You've got kind of stacked modulations. The first one, I don't think, goes more than um, one degree away from its home key. Okay. So it doesn't quite have that same clarity of direction. It gets a bit lost sometimes, and there's a jolt back to the home key right at the end. <laughs> yeah. We sort of do a, a hairpin turn modulation, which could be a sign of computer, but no, I think that one's going to be the professor doing his best Bach impression. Yeah. And then number three, I'm going to put some capital down. I'm pretty sure this is Bach. Right. It's a much more chromatic melody. It's not always functional. And when it is, it's more playfully functional. It's easily the most daring of the inventions. Mm -hmm. And I am horrified to find out the truth of this. <laughs> Mike is doing his very best poker face. And... <laughs> Okay, I guess we're going to find okay. out. Okay, so you put a money on, the first is algorithmically generated, the second is the professor, and the third is Bach. Yes. Well, you did better than the audience did. Okay. Because the third is Bach. Oh, okay. That's all that really mattered to me. Okay, yes. The first is the professor, and the second is the algorithmically generated one. Interesting. Okay, so the algorithm did better than I thought it would. And actually, it was exactly that key change that hairpin turn into the final modulation. Right, yes. That was the biggest clue to me that it was AI. Because musically, I don't think you would ever do that. You would you go through all these things and then you build up some tension and actually arrive at the final key. I thought that was the biggest giveaway. Remembering at the last chord what key you started in. Yeah. But the audience, <laughs> brilliantly, they thought that the professor was the computer generated, mm. as you did, but they thought that the Emmy one was the real Bach. Interesting. And they were all classical music listeners. Okay. They actually felt that the Emmy one was more Bach than the real Bach. I mean, that's quite a vote of confidence to the technology, isn't it? And to be 100% honest, had no one told me that there was a computer generated thing in here, I could easily have thought that any of these were bits of Bach I hadn't heard. Yes. Which is pretty shocking in some respects. And to be honest, that hairpin modulation at the end, mm. I would so happily sit and be told, oh no, that's the kind of modulation that was big back then. Yeah, it could be stylistic. But irrespective, let's take it at face value. You see, this is my real jam about this whole thing, right? Let's take this at face value. Mm. Particularly as this is 22 years ago, you'd expect them to have made some progress <laughs> since then. You would. Let's assume that it's possible to create a piece of music 
via this algorithm that you could listen to and get the same appeal you get out of a two-part invention by Bach, mm. which clearly the audience felt that you could because they selected the Emmy as the real Bach. Mm. And this brings up a wider issue. You know, people have an image of musical composition as being an act of communication. Hmm. You know, that a composer's emotions and intentions are being transmitted to the listener through the work. And the listener kind of accepts these things from the composer. Mm. A quote from this Hannah Fry book that she brought up in this light was yeah. um, Leo Tolstoy saying, Art is not handicraft. It is the transmission of feeling the artist has experienced. Gosh, okay. Not, not much wiggle room in that definition, is there? Now, I have long subscribed to a less popular view hmm. from a book actually I read while I was at university that is both the most important book I've ever read on music analysis and also the most tedious and difficult book. <laughs> it was like wading through treacle to read the thing. What's it called? It's called Music and Discourse by Jean-Jacques Natier. Okay. And his idea is that actually it's not a question of the composer communicating to the listener through the work. What happens is that the composer creates a work but then the listener recreates a work for themselves based on the artefact that the composer has created. Mm. It's their interpretation of it that creates the work for them. So music becomes a means through which we can experience ourselves. Yeah, that basically the interpretation of the listener is not dictated by what the composer intended in any way. And in fact, if you completely shift the frames of references of the listener and the composer, it's not guaranteed that any specific thing that the composer wants to communicate to the listener will actually be received by the listener. You can't guarantee any of that. Mm. Now, Natier makes a kind of philosophical argument for this. But what I find so interesting about this AI thing is that the computer intends nothing. Right, yes. And yet, someone can see meaning in something that to the computer has no meaning at all. It's just a bunch of rules and algorithms from a non-sentient computer. So my first thought about that is, well, if there is no transmission of any intention or emotion or anything from the computer, it is being generated entirely by the listener. Yeah. And there's a further slam dunk from David Cope for me, the guy who generated this EMI algorithm. He said... Oh dear, okay. One of the things he liked to do was play people the Emmy-generated compositions that are pretty much, as we can see, indistinguishable to a lay person. Yeah. And he played them to people, sometimes telling them and sometimes not telling them. It was an Emmy composition. Mm. And I quote, When they assume the music is human, they are obviously moved and speak in the same terms as if it had been Chopin. But when I tell them that there's nothing behind the music but cold, hard machinery doing addition and subtraction, then they won't admit they were moved. <laughs> you know, if the whole residual meaning argument held, mm. someone then being told that it was a computer could still say, well, I'm moved about it. Would take just as much pleasure. Completely. There's this ability for the human to stop themselves feeling some emotion because they think there's no intention. Even though, if you hadn't told them that, they would have felt that emotion. They would have assumed it were a human composer and they would have felt it. So to me, the reason why this is my jam... <laughs> <laughs> is that this feels to me like very strong evidence that Natier's view holds some weight. There's an act of creation that goes on in listening to music, which has to do with more than just the sounds you're hearing. I mean, where does it end then? Are we going to have to educate ourselves to ignore who created something in order to get meaning out of it? Or do we get better at detecting computerised sounds and start to discount them and look for authenticity because that's already happened. That's possible. There are those kind of um, historic reports of people playing some of the first wax cylinder recordings and people in the audience going, it was indistinguishable from the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> or the video footage of a train coming towards the camera which when played in cinemas had people scrambling from their seats. Yes. This is the early, early days of film. Like, how, how could you even make out that that was a train? <laughs> yeah. That's anyone's guess. I don't think VHS is watchable. I mean, yeah. 
with that, it is sadly once again time to say goodbye, farewell, afidasein. Pet. Pet. <laughs> Precisely. Um, Mike, do we have any Patreon updates? Well, we've posted the t-shirt design. <gasps> yes, indeed. So, Acoustic Sideburns are now out there on Patreon. <laughs> Again, the very finest comic I have ever read. Spider-Man Episode 1 has nothing. No. Nothing, not even fingertips on this. Um, and we've been talking about, of course, the song we'd most like to steal. We truly reveal the, <laughs> the darkest sides of our souls. And if you want the full background on John's heavy metal knitting attempt, then that <laughs> is also up there on the Patreon. Ongoing, tragically ongoing. Uh, which leaves us just time to thank this month's... Sorry, I've got some carrot in my teeth. <laughs> it's a danger of having carrot on the desk while recording it finds its way into the teeth. <clears throat> Once more. Which gives us... Oh, come on, <laughs> Home straight. Um, tip of the tongue and the teeth and the lips. Which gives us just time to thanks... Thank... Which gives us just time to thank this month's sponsors. Now, Mike. Yes. You will attest that nothing matters more than monitor positioning. It's crucial. And it's so important that this positioning be dynamic, mm. be responsive, mm. be organic optimized in real time in real time mm. which is why i am i am proud and excited that this month we are being sponsored by monitor lizards <laughs> monitor lizards it's a snappy brand a snappy brand in more ways than one. Oh, right these large lizards have monitors glued to them <laughs> this, this company has glued monitors to these large very snappy lizards Crumbs. Exciting. At least that makes sure you keep an adequate distance from your monitors for fear of flesh wounds. It encourages a safe and responsible distance. Mm. And so long as the room's kind of cold enough, they, they don't get overly aggressive. Mm. But it gives you what, you know, what is more dynamic, what is more organic than lizards? Oh, I, totally. Is there a training procedure? Do you need to break your lizards in before you uh, do any critical listening? They are easily startled and become immensely... So nothing too loud is probably a... Okay. Uh, well, it's a safety feature. It's kind of a nudge <laughs> towards the safe listening level. Absolutely. I'm liking it. That's what it is. It stops you from listening too high. Also, the cables do get tangled. They have a, they have a little notice on their website. There's a lot of panicked biting. So you'll need armoured cables, so you need to budget for that. And quite a lot of dead rabbits, apparently small rabbits, are the go-to food. You can just sort of mm. throw them about where you want your listening experience to emanate from. <laughs> ah, clever. Is there like a subscription service for that? Yes. So they say that you'll probably need to replace your lizards about once every two weeks. Oh, right. Because having large speakers glued to them, they'll stop moving, suffice it to say. It's hard work. So, so they, they send out two fresh lizards um, and a hot glue gun every fortnight. And you can... I thought it might just be because the lizards shed their skin and needed to re-glue. Would be a much brighter, more family-friendly way to go. But no, in this in this world that I'm talking about, you've just got a room full of dead lizards. Oh, all right. Which, right. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a cheerful note to end on. Well, I mean, well, thanks to uh, Monitor Lizards. Huge thank you for their sacrifice <laughs> and sponsorship. One almost gets the impression that the good people at Monitor Lizards thought of the funny title, but didn't think that much more through the. the... <laughs> didn't quite think the product through. <laughs> Maybe they're regretting that now. I guess we'll never know for sure. <laughs> well, in which case, if you have further suggestions for sponsors, now that these ones, I think, have put themselves out of business, then feel free to email them to us at tbreak at projectstudiotbreak.com. Or tweet them at us at um, PSTB Tweets at Twitter or PSTB Books 
on Facebook. <laughs> and we'll see you next month. <laughs> Lovely. Until next time. Bye.